Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent and the best podcast in Nevada. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and on this week's episode, reporter Riley Snyder talks with Sandra Rodriguez and Amy Kokas from UNR's Center for Student Engagement to chat about an increase in student voter participation at the university from 2014 to 2018. After that, I sit down with indie reporter Daniel Rothberg to talk about his big three-part story on the Anaconda copper mine outside of Yarrington, and how after it closed in the late 70s, it began leaking uranium and arsenic into the water supply. For our fun segment this week, we have a poll we wanted you to respond to on what you want to hear in our fun segments in the future. Will John finally get the movie review segment he's been begging for? Should we argue about punctuation some more? Okay, uh, I think a good place to start is introductions. Can you both tell me who you are, what your role is with the university, and kind of what your role is exactly with uh, student engagement and voting? Sure. My name is Sandra Rodriguez. I'm currently the director of ASUN and the Center for Student Engagement. About nine years ago, we shifted our pedagogy completely to have all of our programs and services fall under the umbrella of civic literacy and democratic engagement. So all of our work with clubs and organizations now, the student government, voter outreach initiatives, it's all it all comes under that umbrella. Um, and I'm Amy Kokus, and I'm an associate director here at the ASUN Center for Student Engagement. Yeah. <laughs> she kind of talked about the role we play. Uh-huh. And yeah. we're here today to talk about this uh, study that Tufts University put out. Um, it was a study of more than 1,000 colleges and universities that looked at voter participation among college students between 2014 and 2018. And we're here because the university did really well. In 2014, I think we were 2% under the national average. And in 2018, we were, uh, I think, 6% over mm-hmm. similar universities. Can you talk a little bit about the study, how it came about, how long of a process it's been, and what it was like working with the Tufts University people? Sure. Um, we've actually been a part of the study since 2012. We weren't really paying attention to it. Somebody, thank goodness, somewhere back uh, decided, hey, this would be a great study to be involved in. I want to say it was about 2013 when we discovered, as the Center for Student Engagement, we're part of the study. So we reached out to entities on campus and said, hey, we're really interested in this because everything we're doing is under civic literacy and democratic engagement. May we become the connection to Tufts University? They agreed. So honestly, it's it's been wonderful to be a part of the study. The only work that's required on our part, because there's over a thousand universities that are surveyed, It's the back part of the report where we had to work with enrollment management, specifically Heather Turk. Imagine a thousand universities, they all have different kinds of colleges. So what Heather has to do is she has to align uh, our majors into what what Tufts University calls fields of study. So that's the one thing where you're going to see it's not, it doesn't fall under colleges, it falls under fields of study. But other than that, it's just been being able to turn over the data whenever they need it. I don't know if asking like what went wrong in 2014 is the right question because voter turnout statewide and nationally was much lower than it was in 2018. But were there things that that you two have learned um, between 2012 when this whole process started, both of you have been here for for two decades or almost two decades, Mm -hmm. um, that the university is doing now that helps increase voter participation for for college students? Yeah, so I think 
the university is really just trying to get the word out a lot more over the last couple of years. So you'll see a lot more ways to register to vote on campus. Um, we worked with local high schools and we've been registering students in the Washoe County area to register to vote. Mm-hmm. We have a large percentage of our students coming from Washoe County. So it makes sense that we go out and do that work, get them registered to vote. And then when they're here, then we're working on voter education, make sure they get out the vote. You know, we have a early voting location here in the Joe, which I think really helps out. Um, The Joe Crowley Student Union staff has had that going for a while and so we just helped to promote that. I know everybody on campus Mm -hmm. tried to promote that as a way to get the vote out early, right? And um, this last time there was lines waiting. I waited in that line (laughs) to vote early and so I think there's just become more of an awareness. It was always out there but we've been coming together as in groups and figuring out how to spread the message going into classrooms, um, trying to visit new students, all the different ways Mm -hmm. that we can reach out to students And so I think there's just been sort of a heightened group coming together and spreading the word. Mm -hmm. We definitely harnessed Senate Bill 144 immediately. Um, The fact that online voting, right, was a reality. It was about connecting students to the information. We have a democratic engagement coalition that's comprised of students, faculty, staff, uh, grad and undergrad students. Really, our goal was to get everybody excited about the process again. 2014 was really alarming. Mm-hmm. When we got back that data, immediately we were like, we've, we've got to strategize. This is not acceptable. We often look at the intersectionality of students' identities, right? Like race, class, gender. We made a commitment a long time ago. Those intersections are important and complex, just as equally important and complex as their civic identity. Right? What do we have to do to bring that civic identity to the forefront, right? To say we need to nurture that part of their identity as well. And so it came with information. And you know what? The students we have here, we all have to admit this now, we're in a tremendous position of privilege. If we're not engaging the process, who will? So part of it was like, it's not just a a right, it's a responsibility. You have an obligation to at least register to vote. If you decide later on you don't want to vote, know that you're making a choice, right? And what we're finding is that students are saying, okay, I want to embrace that part of my identity, right? And all of that has come. You would think it was like one big program. No, it's painstaking day in and day out, getting faculty on board, getting staff on board, even... uh, the administrative, the staff employees council, they're excited to be a part of, right? Getting our students interested in the process. So our approach was one, let's create some shared language so we're all speaking the same language. And two, let's help everyone understand they're actually a part of the solution. And so once that happened, student clubs have been a major part of this. Um, They've been setting up booths to register students to vote. Okay, let's say they only register 10. That's 10 more students that weren't registered to vote. Mm -hmm. Um, 2015 and 16, it was 16 and 17, this place was crawling with all sorts of organizations registering students to vote. And we'd say, sure, what do you need? Do you need a table? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, yeah, it's it's been very much a community collective effort. Mm -hmm. I remember... um 
on election day in 2016, we recorded our um, like election night broadcast at UNLV, mm-hmm. and uh, the Next Gen group, the Tom Steyer group, yes. had a limo and a red carpet to take students out to vote <laughs> if they hadn't done it already. They, done they asked it. us, but we're, we're not students, but yeah. just the, the amount of effort is, is pretty incredible. Um, I also wanted to ask, one thing I was thinking about before this interview is that there are still barriers uh, to having college students and young people's vote. One in particular that I experienced, for full disclosure, I went to the university a long time ago, mm-hmm. um, was that when I was a freshman living in the dorms, I didn't know which, like, what address to register as, or I think a lot of students might still register back at their home address, mm-hmm. whether that's out of state. How do you guys kind of deal with that? And I'm sure that's a, a question that comes up all the time. Well, we, there was actually a spike in mail voting, and do you want to yeah. explain what we did? Yeah, so we realized, so I guess this year we've been really talking to a lot of incoming students about the process. We started, we realized we have to start that early, right? Mm -hmm. And so we really need to make sure that students know they have a choice. And that's what I tell them. I was like, your choice is right now. You can either stay registered where you're at. Let's say you're from Las Vegas. You can stay registered in Clark County, or you can update your address and and vote in Washoe County. And so I think it's really about explaining the process because, right, they don't realize that that's a choice when they come to college, right? And so we've been trying to, to break that barrier down so that they can understand now if you're going to stay registered in Clark County let's say then make sure you understand that you need an absentee don't wait in line at the early voting right Mm -hmm. and so we've been doing a lot of education around that but then we also worked with the residence halls because a barrier at the residence halls is that unfortunately they cannot receive mail and so they can get a PO box here um, on campus we have a post office um, place where they can purchase that but anymore people don't really get a lot of physical mail and so a lot of them choose not to do that right and so what we did was we partnered with Washoe County Voter Registrations Office and they said, yes, you can be a, a mailing address for these students. So let's say someone lives in Great Basin Hall. They can say, okay, when they're registering, I live in Great Basin 203 right the room number but then for their mailing address they can use our space the center for student engagement as a as a mailing address Mm -hmm. and then we receive their voter registration card Uh, we lock it in a safe and then people have to come show id right we had to put all those things in place so that we can Mm -hmm. make sure the process is upheld Um, and so we saw people taking advantage of that this last midterm election and so we've been trying to put those things into place to educate our students Mm -hmm. right and i don't think that solves the issue we, we just had this conversation. We're still looking for ways, either addressing it through the regents level or, and when I say we, I mean ASU and the associated students, addressing it at the regents level or going to the state legislature and saying, how do we change this? You've got 3,200 students that live in all these residence halls. By far, I believe the University of Nevada has the largest number of residents on the campus we need to pay attention to that population, right? So we're going to figure out a way to bridge that gap. Out of curiosity, I don't think there's like a way to actually measure this, but just as someone who's a young person in Nevada and who went to the university and is now um, covering news and politics, there's been a lot more attention paid towards the political process since the 2016 election. Mm-hmm. Would you talk up some or a significant percentage of increased student engagement, uh, registering to vote and actually turning out to vote um, because of the 2016 election or heightened just kind of awareness of the, the political system? What, what has changed, I guess, for students on, on campus in terms of their relationship with, with politics nationally and locally? One, uh, we're looking at a different generation, Generation Z. Um, this group can actually walk away from their cell phone. You know, They're not fixated on social media. What they are is very critically conscious. They, they consume news carefully. 
uh, I think that's real important. They are skeptical. They have spent uh, the last three years under a very different type of uh, national administration and are being forced to deal with social issues in a way that, that I think society hasn't had to do in a while. And so it's pretty hard to turn those things off when they're coming at you from everywhere, right? Social media, television, your cell phone. I, I also think that that can be a positive thing because in getting the word out about, hey, these, these are not only your rights, but your responsibilities, right? We're able to use the very same platforms to send that message out and to get those students involved. I don't, I just, it is not a surprise that the state of Nevada elected the first female majority legislature in the history of this country. To me, it's not a surprise. When we saw the kind of engagement that was taking place, not just on campus, but out in the community, we also belonged to national organizations. We were connected with initiatives that were taking place down in Las Vegas. There was a lot of push to get people registered to vote. I couldn't help, but even at that point, we were like, there's gonna be some huge changes taking place. Students were aware, right, of that movement. They were aware of the, the two major campaigns that ran over the midterm elections, and they wanted to be a part of the process. So I don't know, I'd like to think it's an evolution of the civic culture um, that we actually have been watching uh, unfold in the last like five to six years. Um, just to, to wrap it up, looking at this report, every single demographic group that was surveyed showed an increase in participation. Moving forward into 2020, are there specific targeted initiatives that you guys plan to do among certain demographic groups that didn't reach the level of, of certain student demographics? Or what's what's sort of the plan uh, for the next year and a few months until the, the 2020 election? Well, we've just gotten the data, right? <laughs> so that we're yeah. trying to right now, um, as an institution, sort of share wide the information and also absorb it ourselves and, and what it looks like for the campus but absolutely there will be partnerships there will be how do we get this we already have the groups. partnerships yeah. we've got to evolve them now to say okay we've got some new data what do we do differently mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. i want to be real clear riley we get to speak on behalf of the institution but all of these numbers are reflective of work done by the faculty in the classroom i just don't know how to measure that right? Mm -hmm. By our community partners, by the young Dems, by the college Republicans, by the libertarians, by the feminist, young feminist majority. Like our goal has been to literally open the gate to this institution and to say, you need to help us connect all of these students to everything that's going on out there. We literally said, oh my gosh, our work is now doubled before 2020. You're going to be a Republican. We keep sending this message, be the best Republican you can be. By that, I mean conscientious, right? Vote your principle. You're going to be a Democrat, do the same thing. The point is vote, right? But you can't vote unless you register to vote. Our message is actually, our messaging is about the right and the responsibility. It's not about joining a particular party. That you have to do on your own. You have to decide, right, what your values are. But don't let those values stop you from being a part of the process because you think there's no one else like you out there or that thinks like you out there. Um, I'm also kind of troubled right now. You know, we've got these extremes, right, on both ends of the continuum. And then you've got like students who for the most part are gonna be operating 
not at the extreme. They're going to be in all this gray area in between. And so then sweeping generalizations being made about young Dems are probably all Antifa, about college Republicans are probably all part of the AIM, and not the case. Right. But imagine then the environment that, that these groups as, as uh, young citizens, the, the territory they're navigating right now. Most kids would say, peace out. Why, why will I deal with Why am I going to deal with this? Kudos to them for sticking it out. Right. Mm-hmm. So we want to be able to provide support for the student groups who work with, for the student government, for the community partners that rely on us for resources. Hope, at the end, I hope that the, the, the more rational voices are going to prevail. And by that, I mean that they've engaged in some critical thinking and some research, right? So, yeah, we got a lot of work in front of us, a lot. Uh All right, well, thank you two so much for spending the time with us today. Absolutely, thank you. All right, so, Daniel, you've joined me in the studio. Uh, UNR has graciously lent us their radio studio today. How's it going? It's going all right. How are you? Doing well. And you just had a really big piece come out, a three-part series on the Anaconda Mine, um, and it ran last week. By the time people are hearing this, it'll be last week. Mm-hmm. And can, can you kind of just walk me through what this is? You know, this is a huge piece. This is thousands of words long. Yeah. Well, the piece is looking at the sort of past, present, and future of the Anaconda Copper Mine in near Yarrington, Nevada. And the Anaconda Copper Mine operated from uh, the 1950s to about 1978. It shut down operations. And in that time, some of the former mining practices that they used, many of them are not allowed today. They contaminated the groundwater aquifer with uranium and arsenic, creating a pretty significant public health hazard and certainly a contamination hazard. So my story was looking at overall the cleanup efforts and how sort of the past and the legacy of mistrust with the state has dogged those efforts, the kind of debate over who is responsible for the groundwater plume and the kind of future of the site, which at a time was a huge economic boon to the area, employed a lot of people, and there are there are some proposals to remine the site and look for copper and sort of how you square that with the kind of legacy of of the site. Now, you explain it in your story, but just so people know, can you explain like what a groundwater plume is? Because I think that's super central to the story. Sure. Yeah, it definitely is. In Reno and Las Vegas, most people get their water from the Truckee River or the Colorado River, which are considered surface water supplies. But throughout Nevada, and including in Reno in the, in the Truckee Meadows area, a lot of people draw their water from the groundwater, from aquifers, through wells. And groundwater is used for mining, it's used for agriculture, it's used for industry. So in effect, what happened at this mining site is waste from the mine containing uranium and arsenic, as I mentioned, was put into unlined ponds. Unlined ponds are not allowed, the state regulators in, in this case would not allow unlined ponds anymore. And what happened was the, those elements sort of seeped into the ground and they became part of the groundwater aquifer. And there has been a lot of modeling on this. What happened is even though those ponds, those, those sort of waste ponds were on site because of how the sort of geology works and the groundwater works, the, the waste kind of flowed north. So it flowed underneath the site and contaminated 
a sort of off-site aquifer that was used by residents and by agriculture to grow different products. So that, that is what is considered the plume. It is the extent of mine contamination in the groundwater. The plume is quite large and quite deep. It's about, I think, 400 feet deep. And I, I believe it is about 350,000 acre feet, which is a significant amount of water. So what's what's going on now with with this thing? You know, obviously in your story you talked about this kind of this uh, almost rivalry people have seen between the state, the Nevada Division of Environmental Protection, and the EPA nationally. You've kind of seen this a little bit of butting heads, especially people just kind of wondering, you know, who's responsible for this. So how has how has their attention affected the cleanup effort? So effectively, what happened with this mine is in addition to the mining that occurred that I mentioned. Back in the 70s, another company mined in the 90s and abandoned the mine when it went bankrupt in 2000. So it left a portion of the mine with a significant amount of acidic fluids. It abandoned that portion of the mine. In the beginning, the Nevada Division of Environmental Protection was responsible for the cleanup. They handed off authority to the EPA in 2004. Since then, the state has wanted to sort of regain oversight of the cleanup. I think that the the state had been frustrated that the EPA was moving too slow. I think they felt like there was a bias toward studying and overstudying issues. But there were a lot of people, activists, environmentalists, two local tribes who were pushing to add this mine to the Superfund national priority list. That would have made this site eligible for federal funding. In 2018, Governor Brian Sandoval signed an agreement with then EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, which essentially deferred the site from the national priorities list and gave the state oversight control. In doing that, Atlantic Richfield, a subsidiary of BP, the big oil company, agreed to put up about 30 to $40 million for the cleanup if the state was regulating the cleanup. So that has created a lot of tension. There are a lot of environmentalists and activists who argue that the state just simply does not have as much leverage as the federal EPA does, which is working with BP on several different sites throughout the country. And they are worried that the state is sort of going to be pushed around by this big company. One of the significant pieces of news in my story was that Governor Sisolak supports the agreement that Sandoval signed. But he added that his administration will continue to, quote, will continue to closely monitor the cleanup efforts to ensure that the NDEP, Nevada Division of Environmental Protection, continues holding Atlantic Richfield accountable. So, so I think that there is still this sort of tension and frustration that nothing has been done, that there has just been sort of shifting regulatory authority, shifting responsibility at the site that has, that has made this cleanup very challenging because I think that there is a lot of mistrust around it. So how long, this is a huge piece, you know, how long did it take you to report this and, you know, how many people did you talk to? This story took me a significant amount of time to report, I would say, and I, I still wish that I had more time to work on it. <laughs> Every reporter does, right? I um, started it probably around in August and I... I continued working on it sort of off and on in between my other assignments, and then I was really working on it in earnest sort of the last week. It, it also took me quite a long time to fact check the story and sort of talk to people again and check back in. 
I, I don't know exactly how many people I talked to, but probably several dozen. And I also would say on a story like this, in many stories I report, especially related to groundwater, I read a lot of research and technical reports to sort of make sure that I had an understanding of the situation, because I think that's that's a really important thing for journalists to do, I think, is to make sure they're actually reading the, the reports. And, you know, you've read these reports, you've done all this reporting. What, what, what do you feel like you've learned from this story? You know, you, I feel like you always learn something from a story you report on. What was the biggest takeaway you had from this? Well, I learned a lot about the issue. I learned a lot about the history of the issue and who supported Superfund, who didn't support Superfund, and why. I would say I learned that the issue is extremely complicated because it involves so many different interests and so many different companies and environmental interests and economic interests. And I, I, I learned that the issue is extremely complex. And, and I learned that there are still a lot of unanswered questions and people should be probably paying attention to what is going on and um, some of those unanswered questions. For, for instance, you know, a lot of people have been concerned about whether the state, as I mentioned, has enough leverage over the company in doing the cleanup. And one of one of the issues has been sort of around groundwater and whether the company would be required to clean up the entire groundwater plume, a portion of it, and to what extent they would be required to address it. And as I reported in my story, the company is arguing, has argued in a recent report, which I read and reported from, that their responsibility for their potential responsibility for the plume is significantly less, about half less than had been previously modeled in 2017. So I think that is a significant finding in this story. I think that that is something that people could watch going into the future. And we'll see that the company now has to come back with a sort of new, broader, more in-depth study in October on the groundwater, and it will be interesting to see what they report then. So Yarrington is about an hour and a half southeast of here, where we are in Reno right mm-hmm. now pretty rural area in Nevada with a lot of farming and, and stuff like that, and obviously mining. Why should the urban centers in Nevada care about a story like this? I think it's important for them to care about this. Well, first of all, we're one state. I think that it's it's important that people recognize that we're one state. I think contamination anywhere is a state issue. The water of the state of Nevada belongs to all the people of the state of Nevada. <laughs> yeah. Everyone. Yeah. And it is a responsibility of the state to regulate the water and apportion the water. And so I think it is incumbent on the citizens of the state of Nevada to keep an eye on contaminated water and to to pay attention to water issues. And this is one of them. And I think certainly people in Las Vegas and Reno care deeply about Yucca Mountain. They talk about that quite a bit. People pay attention to that issue. But there is contamination in other parts of the state And I think it's important for people to be aware of that and be aware of the cleanup going on around it and to ensure that, you know, if if we want to have a healthy state government, people need to be aware of what's going on in our state government. Um, And then the third issue I would say, although it's sort of tangential and, you know, our regulations have changed significantly since this mine went into place. You know, I I talked to one state regulator who, who basically said this type of thing would not happen because we have bonding requirements now. You know, a company cannot just leave a site like this with no funding. And we also would never use online ponds in the way that the Anaconda Copper Company did. But I think it is important for people to recognize that it isn't just mining in a rural area. 
you have a phone, you ride, you go on an airplane, you ride in your car. I mean, copper is pro- extremely ubiquitous. You don't go through a, a day of your life without somehow being affected by copper. And so I think it's important for people to understand, you know, where the metals are coming from and the, you know, the potential future mining here, those issues I think are extremely important. And so I, you know, I, I think that that type of awareness is something that hopefully, yeah, I don't know if it, if this story, this mine has not been active since 2000, but yeah, it is important because I think people don't recognize the value that minerals play in everyday life. And I think if they, if they did, they might be a little bit more engaged in the process and have maybe a more nuanced understanding of it. All right. So, well, thank you so much for, for reporting this a really important story, Daniel. And thank you for being on the podcast this week. Thanks for having me. All right. So instead of me sitting down this week and debating the merits of an M-dash or the Oxford comma or getting to know a reporter, we wanted to ask you guys, our audience, how you would feel about hearing different kinds of segments at the end of the episode. Um, so here are a few ideas we came up with for like fun segments that we thought you guys might enjoy. Um, we could debate the merits between Taco Bell and Del Taco. We could debate the merits between El Pollo Loco, Jim Boy's Taco Bell, and Del Taco. We could argue about cats versus dogs, which has a very stark divide in the indie crew. We could talk about the best hikes in Nevada. We could quiz Michelle on slang terms for marijuana because she is our marijuana reporter. We could talk about the best cheap beer. I could describe everyone's vocal ranges after editing them for thousands and thousands and thousands of hours. Probably just hundreds, but you know. We could do Ralston's movie review segment finally. Uh, Secretly, Elizabeth, our managing editor, is very good at billiards, so she could give us some tips on billiards. We could get a secret question from the editors, and me and a reporter could debate that question. We could choose the best 80 songs for Ralston to karaoke to. We could talk about the gear that we use at the Indie, all the tech gear, and what we use it for. Or we could uh, get every staff member's favorite recent book that they've read, and we could, uh, we could chat about some good new books. Anyway, if you like any of those ideas, or if you have an idea of your own, you can tweet it at us, or you can email me, joey at theenvyindie.com. All right, cool. Well, we hope that we get some, uh, some good segments for the future. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters, the best podcast in Nevada. If you want to hear more, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else podcasts are distributed. If you want to help the show, you can do so by rating and reviewing us wherever you listen and telling your friends to check us out as well. If you have criticism, comments, or praise, you can email me, joey at theenvyindie.com. And if you want to sponsor the podcast or indie events, you can email editors at theenvyindie.com. If you'd like to support our brave expedition into the jungles of nonprofit journalism, you can click the support our work button on our site. I'd like to thank Sandra Rodriguez and Amy Kokas for being on this week, as well as Daniel and Riley. I'd also like to thank UNR's Reynolds School of Journalism for letting us use their studio this week. Our original theme song is by People With Bodies, and you can find more of their stuff on Spotify. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>